because we've extended that same type of forgiveness and reconciliation to the people in our lives. So if you're a Christian, you'll be, uh, you're welcome to participate at the appropriate time. Uh, we'll do one side at a time. Linda Henry and I will serve the Lord's Supper. If you're receiving bread, if you'll cup your hands, uh, try to cup it this way as opposed to kind of holding it off to the side. Cup your hands. The bread will be dropped into your hand. There's also unleavened option or, or a gluten-free option. It's all unleavened. And then you can grab a cup of juice and uh, partake of the little bit of unleavened bread and the cup of juice back at your pew. Uh, the bread speaks of the fact that Christ gave his body. Uh, it's not literally the body, but Christ is pleased to proclaim his gospel in a myriad of ways, through song, through prayer, through scripture. And this is a very tangible way that Christ proclaims what is true about the gospel, that we are saved because somebody gave his life that we would live, that sinners would live, those who trust in him. So you'll uh, step out of the center aisle, go back down the side aisle in each case. Meanwhile, we're in Isaiah, and over time, we've, uh, we're doing the second half of Isaiah, 40 to 66. We started off doing 40 to 45, then because of where we were on the Christian calendar with Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we skipped ahead and did 49 through 53. Now we're backing up, and I'm covering those three chapters that we had to skip for a time. Last week we did 46, this week we will do 47, and then probably it will take two weeks to do the chapter after 48. That'll be a little bit longer, there's a little bit more content that will slow us down. So we're in chapter 47, or if you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on pages 607, and 608, chapter 47. This is a natural progression where we left off last week. We were in 46 last week. This is a very natural progression. It's also picking up on a theme that we saw last week, and that is the theme of Babylon's demise. Babylon, in Isaiah's day, is a rising world power. They are not the... uh, the world power, but they are a rising world power. They will rule the Roman world, the Mediterranean world. Uh, They will be that kind of a power after Isaiah has laid down his life. Isaiah has prophesied that Israel, specifically we're talking uh, the southern part of uh, the, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the capital of Jerusalem, they will go into exile. They will be obliterated by Babylon. And there's a word from God to Babylon that while they may look forward to this great supremacy for a time, it will not continue. And they will be judged by Israel's God. That's kind of the setting, and we're in chapter 47. So let me give you a little bit larger context. Number one, the Lord in a sovereign grace chose Israel. The Lord made Israel the people of his own choice, the treasure of his own possession. He said, the Lord said, I will make Israel, I will bring them to myself, make them a nation above all the nations of the earth. They wind up in slavery for a time in Egypt, and we know the story, I think, of of the Lord raising up Moses to be their deliverer to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And Israel becomes this special nation, not because of any, any merit in them, It's not because somehow Israel is stronger, more populous, smarter, more intelligent. Simply because of God's grace, he chose to make Israel a people to himself. 
But the follow-up point to that is that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. There are special people, but as his special people, one of those privileges is that they will be disciplined so that they reflect the character of God. I've got a passage on the board, Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Amos is a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern tribe of Judah. Amos is a prophet to the northern ten tribes. So they have a similar message. Uh, They're contemporaries. Amos puts it this way in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The part where the message says, you only have I known, is a message of God's sovereign grace. It doesn't mean that God somehow is unaware of other nations. That God is unaware of other people groups. But in a unique way, the Lord is saying, I have known you in a special saving way in a way that you will be my sons and my daughters. I've only known you in that way. But because I have that relationship with you, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The northern ten tribes of Israel were punished by the nation of Assyria. The southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, Jerusalem being the capital, and these are the more important tribes, those tribes will be punished by Babylon. And the reason why they're more important is not because they're uh, any more the sons of Jacob than the northern ten tribes. The reason why they're more important is because Jerusalem carries on the, the kingly line of David. And God has promised to raise up a king from the line of David who will rule both heaven and earth. And we know that person is Jesus of Nazareth. So we've got the Lord in His sovereign grace choosing Israel. We've got the Lord disciplining those He loves. That would be through Babylon. And then thirdly, Israel's exile is not the end of the story. There's going to be a marvelous return. So the word initially is very, very uh, down. Jerusalem and the temple and the Jews are going to be taken, uh, taken into exile. Uh, The temple will be destroyed. There will be no Solomon's temple. It's a very down message, but the good news is there will be a return. The fine print is Cyrus the Great will be the deliverer. Cyrus the Great is a Persian. The Medes and the Persians ruled the Mediterranean world after Babylon. Cyrus the Persian is no Moses. Cyrus the Persian is no Joshua. Cyrus the Persian is a pagan. He's a He's a heathen. He worships many gods. And God says, I'm going to use not a Moses, not somebody from one of the 12 tribes of of Israel. I'm going to use a pagan to be your deliverer, but you will return from your exile. And then secondly, Israel's deliverance corresponds to Babylon's demise. Two things are happening at the same time when Israel is allowed to return to their homeland, when they're allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, when they're allowed to uh, begin laying the foundation of a new temple. For all that to take place requires Babylon's demise. It's similar to in the New Testament 
If we were in uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul talks about one day Christ will come back with uh, uh, the angels of heaven in power and glory, and he will rescue his own, and he will bring judgment on those who have resisted his grace, those who have denied his goodness, those who have denied his character. It will, Christ coming back will mean both salvation and judgment. For Isaiah to promise a return, it will, it will be celebrated among the Israelites, but it will mean the demise of Babylon. What's, uh, what's transpiring here in one fashion is remarkable in that only God could do this. God is proclaiming things that will be that are still more than 150 years off. When Isaiah the prophet names Cyrus as being the one who will deliver them, that is like somebody back in Civil War era saying in 2021, I envision a man named Joe who will be your president. That's what it's similar to. It's about roughly the same time period. Over 150 years prior to Cyrus's coming, Isaiah says Cyrus will be your deliverer. He will release you from exile. Right now, when Isaiah is speaking the words, Israelites seem to be enjoying a pretty good life. Their standard of living is pretty high. Their cupboards are full with all kinds of stuff, like our cupboards are full of stuff. But there's coming a day where they will be raised, taken into exile, but there's also a coming a day where they will be released from exile by a man named Cyrus. So if we were to put all this to music, specifically we're in chapter 47, because music communicates ideas, it communicates emotion, it communicates more the passion of a message. Most of Isaiah is written as poetry. A lot of Isaiah uh, was believed to have been sung as if it were a song. Uh, We just came through the, the Christian calendar year where we sang certain songs on Palm Sunday, and then we sang a very different kind of a song on Good Friday. A dirgy kind of song. And then three days later on Resurrection Sunday, we sang yet another type of song where we, where we proclaimed Christ as risen and resurrected. And it was a very upbeat type of song. Uh, I'm a Cub fan. Cub fans aren't singing happy songs right now. But when they do win a game, we've got a song that they sing at the end of the, uh, of the, of the win up in Wrigley Field. Go Cubs, go. Hey, Chicago, what do you say? The Cubs are going to... Win today? Uh, the White Sox have their own song. Rich has already slipped out. White Sox have their own song. Their song is, is, is more taunting. Uh, the White Sox, when the opposing team is getting beat up and they have to change pitchers or at the end of the game, the White Sox sing, na, 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 hey, goodbye. That's what the White Sox sing. Well, In chapter 47, you've got a taunt. This song is a taunt. It's meant to humiliate. It's meant to shame Babylon. Because right now, Babylon looks like they are all that. Right now, it looks like Babylon has got the most glorious future imaginable. No nation on the earth is going to be quite like Babylon. And then you've got what is going to essentially be a taunt in chapter 47. Let me talk a little bit about Babylon. In the Bible, Babylon represents more than just one particular nation or people at a particular time in history. 
Now, Isaiah is giving the message to the Jews, to the Israelites in Judah, in Jerusalem. And so he's thinking about a very specific Babylon. He's thinking about a Babylon that is existing at their particular time who will rise to power and Nebuchadnezzar will be their leader. He's talking about that Babylon. But in the Bible, Babylon's much bigger than just that time period and just that nation. Babylon first shows up at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. This is after the flood. It's before Abraham is ever called. And the peoples of the earth said, we will make for ourselves a name. We will build this tower that goes up to the heavens because we don't need God. So in Genesis chapter 11, Babel uh, exerts itself and exhibits a certain amount of pride and arrogance. That's the first book of the Bible. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapters 14 to 18, you read all about Babylon, especially chapter 18, where Babylon is judged at the end of the age as we know it, before Christ comes back in power and glory, before Christ establishes a kingdom which will know no end. You read about Babylon again. It's not the same Babylon. It's not Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, but it is Babylon. So Babylon, what it means is it represents a worldview and a culture set in opposition to God. Babylon is, I don't need God. I can do it my way. I can define my own existence. I can give myself purpose and meaning to life. I don't need the God of the Bible. That's Babylon. So if we contemporize this, Babylon is secular, popular Western culture. Babylon is the United States of America, set in opposition to God in the Bible. Babylon is Washington, D.C. Babylon is New York City. Friends, Babylon is Decatur. Babylon is Mount Zion. Friends, you live in Babylon. You live in a world culture that sets itself against God and says we will define our own set of values and we will define our own existence. If you don't recognize you live in Babylon, Babylon has far greater influence in your life than, what you're, than you recognize. So, the word culture. Let me talk about that for a moment. I'm no sociologist nor the son of a sociologist, but I do know how to use Google. So I looked up culture on Google and there's different components to culture. I picked what I thought captured it nicely. Most of them overlap. Most of them pretty much say the same thing. Culture is defined this way. Social organization, language, customs and traditions, religion, arts and literature, government, and economics. Babylon says We will define society according to our own set of values. We don't need God to define what a family looks like. We don't need God to define what marriage looks like. We will order society in a way that we think best suits us. They will define what is allowed to be said and what is not allowed to be said. And if you give the wrong message, you will be canceled. Babylon says these are the customs and traditions we value. Babylon says this is the way that you worship rightly. This is how you worship. This is why you worship. Babylon says these are the arts and the literatures that we will promote. Babylon says we will restructure government and we will restructure economics. Babylon is we will do it our way. We're not interested in any any way that God has communicated 
a proper way to organize culture. That's Babylon. So far as chapter 47 is concerned, I'm going to break it up three ways. There, it's not universally recognized breaking the chapter up this way, but this seemed fitting to me. Number one, in verses 1 to 4, we have a description of Babylon's demise. Secondly, in verses 5 to 11, we have reasons for Babylon's demise. This is the what. What happened? Why did it happen? And then at the end, verses 12 to 15, we have the taunt. We have the song, uh, if it wasn't clear before, where Babylon is reproached in verses 12 to 15. Let's start with the what in those first four verses. Follow along in your Bible as I read them. Verse 1, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. And your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance. And I will spare no one. And then there's this little verse, verse 4, that doesn't really fit anywhere quite right. But it seems to be a song of praise and recognition and faith in Israel. Knowing that Babylon will be judged. And Israel says in verse 4, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. So what happened in those first four verses, especially the three? We have a great reversal. Uh, Those that have been here in Isaiah through some time know Isaiah is all about these great reversals. You didn't see it coming because it didn't look like that's the way it was, that's the direction it was headed. What Isaiah has kept, what he keeps telling Israel is, though you will go into exile, Though you will lose your homeland, though Jerusalem's walls will be raised, though the temple will be destroyed, there's coming a great reversal because God hasn't forgotten you. Similarly, Babylon, for all of its power, for all of its acclaim, for all of its wealth, for all of its military might, there will come a great reversal. And the reversal is pretty vivid in those first three verses. Babylon is portrayed as a woman. This isn't a message to a literal woman. The whole nation, the people, the culture are portrayed as a woman. And she's experiencing this great reversal. Two questions. What is surmised about Babylon's present? It's not explicitly told, but but what you get from those first three verses is for a time she enjoyed a throne. For a time it says she was tender and delicate because he says you shall no more be called tender and delicate. So for a time, Babylon enjoyed a throne, a a high position, a life of ease, a life of luxury. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the Babylonian ruler who destroys Jerusalem, that ruler in Daniel chapter 2 has a vision of this great image comprised of four parts, a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, a midsection of bronze, and then uh, iron and clay. And if If you're familiar with that vision that Daniel interprets, those four parts of that one image represent four world kingdoms in sequence. Starts off with Babylon, the head, the Medes and the Persians second, the Greeks, Alexander the Great third, and then the Roman Empire fourth. But what Nebuchadnezzar is told by uh, Daniel, in chapter 2, verses 31 to 38, as he says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are that head. You do what you want. I could read it for you. 
He says, uh, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. That's Babylon. That's the first Babylon that Isaiah is predicting. But then secondly, what is announced about Babylon's fate is it's not always going to be like that. In fact, there's going to be a great reversal to this Babylon. It says, sit in the dust, sit on the ground. He tells the woman, sit in the dust, sit on the ground. Why would you sit in the dust and on the ground? It's a show of humiliation and shame. It's a show of of destitution. Job, when he lost his family... When he lost his fortune, when he lost all that he had, he sat in the dust. And he scraped his sores uh, with with, uh, shards of pottery. And his friends for seven days sat in the dust with him. He'd lost it all. Babylon is told to sit in the dust. Secondly, Babylon is told, take the millstones and grind flour. When Babylon was in her glory, she didn't grind her own flour... Other people ground flour for her. Grinding flour is like an entry-level job. It's what Samson did with all of his power, and then he was blinded and captured by the Philistines. And what did he do? He ground grain with a millstone. It was a show of having lost it all. Babylon is told, your fate is this. You're going to lose it all. You're going to lose your throne. You're going to lose your comfort and your ease, and you're going to grind flower. Thirdly, Babylon is told, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. The idea here is that you're going to get really dirty as you are taken into exile, as you lose it all. When Babylon's in all of her glory and all of her power, the queen didn't tromp through the creek. She had people carry her on something high and lift it up. Because she was too good to get that dirty. But there's coming a day where that wouldn't be true of Babylon. She would have to hike up her skirt and she would have to tromp through the mud like any other ordinary exile because there would be a great reversal of fortunes. And exiles were typically taken, or often taken, maybe not typically, but often they were uh, destitute. They had no clothing. They had nothing. And so she's also pictured as being naked. This great reversal of fortunes. That's what happens to Babylon. Secondly... We have the reasons for Babylon's demise. This starts in verse 5. You can follow along. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. Uh, Some Bibles call her lady of the nations or queen of the nations. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. 
your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. That's the why behind what happened in those first four verses. Behind it all is Babylon's pride and conceit, arrogance, self, uh, self-conceit. That's Babylon, who considers herself the queen of the nations. Even in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he's the head of gold. Queen of the nations. That kind of pride, that kind of arrogance. The Lord juxtaposes his sovereignty and his providence against their excessive cruelty and oppression. What the Lord says to Babylon is, you thought it was all about you. You thought that you were stronger, more intelligent, more winsome, more clever, that you build up this great nation as if you did it apart from me. And and I am the one that enabled you, allowed you, had in my good providence to make you the nation that would judge my people. In fact, what he says is, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. That's the Lord speaking in verse 6. But you know what? They never stopped being his people. He sold them into slavery. He allowed Babylon to come in, but Israel not, never stopped being his people, and they never stopped being his heritage. They never stopped being his uh, inheritance. What Babylon did with all that is they extended no mercy, not even to the aged. They were cruel and heartless to all the people groups that they conquered, for which the Lord judges them in those first three verses. Verse 7, you said I shall be a mistress forever so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. There's a story about Nebuchadnezzar. This is in chapter 4. When Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's all that, he is the premier world ruler. After all, he's the head of gold. And he's admiring his great kingdom, which he has built for himself. And he's been warned by Daniel, and he's paid no attention to that warning. And and Nebuchadnezzar is struck with insanity for what appears to be seven years. He lives like an animal. At the end of that seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's sanity is restored. And Nebuchadnezzar says, now I know there's a God in heaven who does what he pleases. And God sets up kings and rulers and nations, and he brings them down. And no one can stop him, not even Nebuchadnezzar. What will happen in just a little bit, you're going to hear Daniel chapter 5, the very next chapter read after 4, where Nebuchadnezzar's son, it's not his immediate son, it's several sons down, uh, grandson or great-grandson, where Belshazzar is just like his father. Even though Belshazzar knew this story happened, even though he knows Nebuchadnezzar was struck with insanity for being so proud and so arrogant, he didn't take that lesson to heart. And that's part of Daniel chapter 5. You'll read about it in just a moment, or you'll listen to it in just a moment. Babylon is also guilty of self-indulgence. I think it's in verse, uh, verse 8. Babylon is called a lover of pleasures. Babylon is guilty of self-confidence. Babylon says, I sit securely. Babylon says, I won't sit as a widow. I won't know the loss of children. That's security. In most of the world's history, uh, 
for a woman to be married gave her security. For most of the world's history, for a woman to have be surrounded by children gave her security. Babylon says, this is the fortune I will enjoy forever because I'm the queen of the nations. I'll never be a widow. I'll never be deprived of my children. That's the self-confidence and assurance that Babylon has. Babylon says that my wisdom and my knowledge will save me. Babylon says my sorceries and great power are my enchantments. Babylon solves its own problems. That's Babylon. Babylon is also uh, self-deifies itself. Babylon says twice in verses 8 and then in 10... I am and there is no other. If that sounds like a claim that God has been making through Isaiah, you've been paying attention. Because time and again through Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord God, there is no other God besides me. There is no other Savior besides me. Babylon says, not so fast. I am and there is no other. This is worse than Lucifer. Lucifer, who became, we know him as Satan or the devil, Lucifer said, I will be like God. Satan came into the garden and told Adam and Eve, you can be like God. Babylon doesn't say, I will be like God. Babylon says, I am, and there is no other. Babylon denies the very existence of the God of heaven the God of Abraham, the God who created the heavens and the earth, Babylon says it's really all about me. And then an assurance of judgment is given to Babylon that while you think you will never be a widow and never deprived of your children, guess what? Two things are going to happen. You'll be a widow. You'll be deprived of your children in a day. Daniel chapter 5. Babylon is overthrown. Belshazzar, the ruler, is overthrown in a day. So pull out that little scripture reading that's inside your bulletin. This little gold sheet you can listen to. uh, I forget his name now, but I love the way that he he speaks. Daniel chapter 5. This is Babylon's demise actually fulfilled in history. It goes like this. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. 
but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief among the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing, and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of Heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel. Passin, 
Here is what these words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Pires. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed round his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of sixty-two. And that's exactly what happened. That very night, he lost his kingdom and was slain, and the Medes took Babylon the city. It's very interesting because in there you see exactly these themes of Isaiah, where in Isaiah, Isaiah is condemning the gods of the Babylonians. And why would Israel ever be drawn to these gods of silver and gold and wood? Why would they be drawn to those gods who were so powerless? And... and God has given Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in particular all all these kingdoms, all this authority. And he doesn't recognize it as coming from a, a power and an authority greater than his own. And he proclaims himself to be the king of kings. And he loses it all. When he's first uh, seen the writing on the wall, he calls for his magicians. He calls for his enchanters so that they can interpret the meaning and they're unable to do so. And Daniel, the man of God, is able to interpret it and tell him uh, God's judgment on Babylon. Well, you take all of that, and it's not a far stretch to juxtapose it over against the United States of America. Whatever freedoms we have enjoyed in the United States of America, and I've profited greatly from those freedoms, and I'm glad to be living in this country, but friends, it it was a stewardship given by God. It's not that America by itself is any different or more special than any other nation on God's earth. And to the extent that the United States of America decides we don't need God to give us morality. We don't need God to define society. We don't need God to define culture. It will be to America's demise. And we can, we can conjure up all of our science and all of our experts who will tell us how to reorder everything to make it all right and it's all going to go down. Because God isn't threatened by our science and what we think we know. God is God in heaven. He raises up nations. He brings down nations. And apart from the grace and the mercy of God, America is not headed in a good place. It's Babylon. Because Babylon always exists. Babylon never stops existing until Revelation chapter 18. Finally, we have Babylon taunted and reproached in verses 12 to 15. It's very easy to see this as a taunt and a reproach when you compare it to Elijah's taunt in 1 Kings chapter 18. So I'll just briefly mention that story and then we'll read uh, what Isaiah says. In 1 Kings, Elijah thinks he's the only prophet left and he challenges the prophets of Baal. And so they both build altars for sacrifice during a time of terrible drought. The drought's been going on for three years, three plus years, a terrible drought. And the prophets of Baal go first. The God who is the the real God is supposed to call down fire from heaven and light the altar. 
And so the prophets of Baal go first, and the story goes like this. Uh, They took the bull, the prophets of Baal, took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. But Elijah mocks them, he taunts them, wake up your God. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's, he's drifted off to sleep. He's napping. Maybe he's relieving himself. Wake up your God. Now look at what Isaiah says beginning in verse 12. This is, I think, the Lord taunting. The Lord says to Babylon, Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to, to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. That's the taunt of the Lord to Babylon. And what we see is the religion of self always ends in a miserable failure. And it doesn't mean that they didn't try. The prophets of Baal were sincere. I think they worshipped their God sincerely. I think they might have been more dedicated to their God than Israel was to its God. But their problem was their God had no life. The problem was that their God could not save. And so in Isaiah, you've got a situation where the religion of self fails even though these people are devoted to self. Even though it says you've labored from your youth in verse 12. All this labor has only resulted in verse 13 to to being weary. And in spite of all of your science, in spite of all of your knowledge of the stars, in spite of all of your knowledge of of biology and chemistry and, and the way that the world works, economics and government, in spite of all your theories, it will fail. It will all come collapsing down because salvation is not found in theories. It's not found in what man can produce for himself. Salvation is found outside of ourselves. It's found in the God of Scripture. And so the gospel is that we can be saved outside of ourselves by a God who condescended in the person of a son to give his life that I would live. That's the gospel. Christ came to forgive sins. But so long as I think I can roll up my sleeves and I will work hard and I will be devoted to my principle, I will be devoted to my family, I will be devoted to my career, I will be devoted to my good end, wherever, whatever I'm devoted to, it will fail. Because salvation is not found in anything that starts with me. It's found in a God who saves. A God who chose to reveal himself. And with all of those thoughts, we will participate in the Lord's Supper in just a moment. 
the song that I positively like best that really captures what it means to not trust in oneself but to trust in a God who saves is in your hymnal, number 405. We will sing this with Together for the Gospel. Together for the Gospel is a conference every two years in Louisville, Kentucky. Wonderful conference, and the music has been delightful every year that I've ever gone. 405 in your hymnal, not in me, after which Linda and I will come. We will serve the right side of the congregation first and then the left side of the congregation.